This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Today is a special show, I think, and then we're going to be talking comedy for a significant part of the hour. Our favorite comedian, in fact, America's foremost political comic and a regular contributor to this program, Mr. Will Durst, is going to be coming locally this weekend. So naturally, we're going to talk, want to talk to Will about uh, this upcoming event at the Crest Theater Saturday. And while political comedy seems to be surviving on television, uh, the art of stand-up with social commentary and political observations is becoming something of a lost art, we think. Although, of course, we have hopes for its revival, which could happen at any time. But uh, we're going to look back at the golden age of rebel comedians of the 1950s and 1960s by speaking with author Gerald Nachman. His book is exactly on that topic, being that it's titled Seriously Funny, The Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 1960s. A lot of you listening are going to remember these folks firsthand, but a lot of younger listeners may never have heard of some of these names and that's a defect we are going to seek to correct. Thus, we'll be speaking with Gerald Nachman in our second segment today about uh, some of these uh, great figures of American comedy. People who were seriously funny, with a significant part of seriously in the mix. By all means, stay tuned for that. But let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 6th of May. It was on... May 6th in 1915, when playing for the Boston Red Sox, that their star pitcher, left-hander Babe Ruth, hit his first Major League home run. He would hit 713 more before he was finished. And, uh, oh yeah, they moved him into the outfield, given that his offense looked pretty strong. It was on May 6th in 1937 that the largest airship ever built, the Hindenburg, the pride of Nazi Germany, burst into flames while touching a mooring mast at Lakehurst, New Jersey. At over 800 feet long, the Hindenburg still to this day is the largest aircraft ever to have flown. The commercial airship industry never recovered from this tragedy. On this date in 1954, British medical student Roger Bannister became the world's first person to break the notorious barrier of the four-minute mile. Bannister later earned his medical degree from Oxford and was knighted for his athletic skills by Queen Elizabeth. And to Dr. Bannister's credit, when he was brought to America once to appear on the TV program Once My Line, when he found that it was sponsored by a tobacco company, he turned around and got back on the plane and flew back to the UK. Good for him, I say. And it was on this date in 1957 that U.S. Senator John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for, quote, his book, unquote, Profiles in Courage. It turns out that history has shown that although it was Kennedy's idea and he did supply a lot of the uh, guidance to the book, it was in fact written by his speechwriter, Ted Sorensen. Today, the book cover probably would have said, <laughs> Senator Senator John Kennedy and Ted Sorensen. But whoever gets the credit, it's a damn fine book. Our quote of the day comes from Buddha, who said, Holding anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one who gets burned. 
That's pretty good. No wonder he developed the following. Our quip of the day comes from Jimmy Fallon, who said, George W. Bush's memoir is coming out on November 9th of this year. A thousand signed copies will be sold for $350 each, and everyone says, thanks for reading about my decisions. Sincerely, Dick Cheney. Our stat of the day from USA Today is that Goldman Sachs, recently charged with civil fraud, spent $1.2 million on lobbying during the first three months of this year, a 72% increase over the same period last year. The investment firm recently hired former Senate Republican leader Trent Lott to lobby on Capitol Hill. And you know, we're going to have to bring Senator Trent Lott back onto this program. And our joke of the day comes from the weekly column of Gene Weingarten, who I, I guess got a Pulitzer Prize last month for his, uh, his work. And I think this column's worth an extensive quote, which is as follows. I've pretty much given up on Facebook because, please don't take this the wrong way, I'm tired of hearing about every tedious development in your banal, uneventful life. As it happens, I am currently squirting tepid whipped cream directly into my mouth from the can because my refrigerator is broken. And this is the only source of nutrients I can find that is not yet spoiled. But you won't see that on my Facebook page because I have too much respect for your time. So, why do you tell me with whom you went kayaking on Tuesday, what you think of kiwi-flavored marmalade, or that you've become a fan of Gunderson's plumbing and heating supplies in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and think I should be one too? I don't want to. I also don't want to play the word game Scrabble with your niece Amber, who is 11, and that you are, as I know so well from your many status updates, a dental hygienist, currently in a relationship with someone named Daryl, who likes dirt bikes, Rottweilers, and borscht. Sorry, bad attitude, I know. It's my own fault. When I first began using Facebook, I made a fateful mistake. I decided I was not going to be a snob, and then I would befriend anyone who asked whether or not I had any idea who that person was. And I followed that pledge, except in one case, a guy who applied for friendship on the grounds that we needed to open a meaningful dialogue about how I'd been cruel to Dick Cheney. Well, I've been punished for my promiscuity. I now have more than 1,400 friends, almost none of whom I've ever met, yet most of whom I hear from every time I log on in endless pages of stultifying drivel, such as this one I was just alerted to as though it were news of an outbreak of war in Europe. Andrea commented on Lamont's status. Yes, I know that I can tweak my settings to shut off the insipid drone, the online equivalent of putting a finger in each ear and babbling. But if I did that, I would be secretly betraying the 1,400 people who think of me as their friend. That would be just plain rude. Instead, I'm writing this column. Could you all please shut the hell up? Thank you. Gene Weingarten. We applaud his Pulitzer. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for chutzpah after a surveillance camera captured clear pictures of a man wearing a bright blue yarmulke as he robbed a bank in Darien, Connecticut. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Trekkies. 
last week after Leonard Nimoy, the 79-year-old actor who has played the Star Trek's original Spock for 40 years now, said he was retiring from acting as well as the Star Trek convention circuit. And finally, it was kind of an ugly week last week for Iranian Ayatollahs after a group of female students organized Boobquake Day. I'm just reporting what I'm reading. In which women wore revealing outfits to mock an Iranian cleric's claim that earthquakes were divine punishment for immodest dress. But uh, the Week magazine did note that a 6.5 magnitude earthquake did hit Taiwan on the day of the protest. All right, from the Only in America file, we have the fact that a Florida man is now being sued over a negative review he left on eBay. Michael Stedman says the $44 clock he bought from Elliot Miller arrived in three pieces, so he called Miller a bad seller on the site. Miller is now suing for defamation, claiming he, he offered the clock as is. And from the Only in Latin America file, we have this. Dateline Aguas Calientes, Mexico. Spain's most famous matador was badly gored during a bullfight, leaving him hospitalized in serious condition. The bull pierced Jose Tomas Roman Martin in the upper thigh and tossed him several feet into the air. After three hours of surgery, he's expected to survive. The incident was reported the 15th goring for the bullfighter, famous for his fearlessness and ability to stay perfectly still while a charging bull misses him by millimeters. Well, Apparently not always. Jose Tomas retired in 2002 saying he'd had enough, but made a surprise return five years later. To live without fighting bulls, he said, is not to live at all. Now, the question is, why in the 21st century do we still conduct bullfights? I mean, why don't we bring back gladiator games and bear baiting? Primo entertainment from the 3rd century. I don't know, I hate to admit it, Jose Tomas, but I'm rooting for the bull. All right, everybody who uh, thinks that drilling offshore is a good idea needs to get their pickup truck, fill it up with some buckets, and drive down to Louisiana. They're not talking about how it may take two months to stop this massive oil spill, which is threatening uh, fragile Gulf wetlands from, I guess, Texas to Florida. I don't know. This stuff gets in the Gulf Stream. It might be threatening Ireland. I don't know. Uh, that is an ugly story we're going to have to return to at greater length. But, uh, but yeah, anyone out there stupid enough to think that offshore drilling is going to make a big dent in... Uh, in our energy crisis, you got to realize there's a very large price to pay when things go wrong, and sooner or later, they always do. And speaking of disasters in that part of the world, uh, we've been sitting on a quote from the former First Lady of Haiti, which I think we need to uh, talk about. Commenting on Haitian President René Preval's low profile since the country's devastating earthquake, she said, He's not doing. He's not speaking. He's not acting. He's not moving. And if he's not moving, how's the country supposed to move? Of course, that quote is taught by the Haitian president himself, who, speaking in his own defense, said, I don't do politics, okay? 
And speaking of women commenting upon ineffectual political leadership in the Gulf of Mexico region, and how's that for a segue? Laura Bush, the former first lady, is opening up with her new autobiography, which we're pretty sure was not written by Ted Sorensen. And note that in it, she defends her husband's highly criticized decision to fly over New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Laura Bush says this was in the best interests of the victims and aid workers on the ground. He did not want one single life to be lost because someone was catering to the logistical requirements of a president, she says. Mr. McMillan, I think we need a wah-wah-wah sound effect. Can you work on that? I was fascinated by the following uh, part of the review of her book that said, Laura suggests now, for the, apparently for the first time, that she and George W. Bush and several members of their staff may have been poisoned during a visit to Germany for a G8 summit. They all became mysteriously sick. The president was bedridden for part of that trip. The Secret Service investigated the possibility they were poisoned, she writes, but doctors could conclude only that they'd contracted a virus. After noting several high-profile poisonings, she wrote, We never learned if any other delegations became ill or if ours, mysteriously, was the only one. And you wonder why on the Bush watch we were attacked on September 11th. This is an administration that apparently couldn't find out whether anybody else had gotten sick at the G8 summit. How hard could that be? Hello, Tony? How, how you feeling over there? You guys all right? Hello, President Berlusconi. Hey, feeling pretty good? You okay? Yes, we never learned if any other delegations became ill or if ours, mysteriously, was the only one. And from the miscellaneous file, an item we frankly can't resist. Apparently an Ohio man called 911 after a prostitute failed in his view to provide sufficient value. William Ferris, age 27, initially reported a robbery but soon admitted to cops that he had paid a prostitute $50 for sex in a fast food restaurant's locked restroom. He told police he'd received certain attentions, but that given the sum of money involved, he'd apparently expected, quote, all of it, unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, please act responsibly in your use of the 911 system. These sorts of calls are not what it was set up to do. And speaking of Goldman Sachs, we have to say a few words about that uh, disaster. We love the Mike Lukovich uh, cartoon repeated in the B last Sunday. Showed several congressmen saying, financial deregulation allowed you to create shady investments that netted you gazillions. What's your response? Team Goldman Sachs looking back at them. Thanks. I think at some point we're going to have to get uh, Greg Gordon and Chris Adams from McClatchy Newspapers doing some good work on this Goldman Sachs issue. They noted last weekend that in December of 2006, Goldman Sachs embarked on a frantic effort to shed billions of dollars in risky mortgage securities and buy exotic insurance to protect itself against what it had concluded would be the collapse of the U.S. housing market. This is in 06. Yet for nine months, until September 20th, 2007, the Wall Street giant didn't disclose its actions and key filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission, nor in teleconferences with analysts, nor in press releases. Even the Wall Street Journal is now being forced to pile on. Comments by Brett Arens last Sunday. I have to quote from this a bit. Said Mr. Arens, typical Wall Street bankers have three priorities. Their own bonuses 
for the year, their bosses' bonuses for the year, and their own stockholders. Customers, that's you and me, come a very distant fourth. It's a mistake to forget that. Noted Mr. Arends, whatever the legalities in this case, nobody's going to claim it behaved well, referring to Goldman. The bank worked closely with hedge fund tycoon John Paulson to construct a sucker's bet on subprime bonds that Mr. Paulson could bet against. Then it went looking for suckers. So maybe that Goldman Sachs is going to blame this guy Fabrice Torre for all their mis, uh, misbehavior. I, I, guess, I guess Lee Harvey Oswald's no longer available. And we do have to get Matt Taibbi in the program. We can't recommend highly enough his current uh, update in Rolling Stone about the matter, the Feds versus Goldman. But I just love his summary about the three different excuses Goldman offered within a few days of each other, <laughs> said Taibbi. Within the space of a few days, Goldman issued three different explanations which progressed from A, we absolutely, positively didn't do it, to B, if we did do it, we didn't make any money doing it, and finally, on to C, if somebody did it, it was only that French cat, Torre, and here's his head if you want it. As we say, there'll be more to follow on that. All right, let's take a short break and come back and talk with Gerald Nachman, final item of the segment. Apparently, Archie Comics has announced that after 70 years, Riverdale High would enroll its first openly gay character, a cute blonde guy named Kevin Keller. The company has said it was part of an effort to keep the series current and inclusive. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for Gerald Nachman. <laughs> 